We're going to be in First uh, Timothy, uh, chapter one. We're actually going to begin at verse one this week. But before we uh, get into the, today's message, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap. You guys know that I do this every single week, especially when we're in the middle of a series, because I want to continually remind you. You know, we call it purposeful redundancy or intentional repetition. I want to continue to remind you, to put you in things, even though you remember them or you know them, I want to remind you of them again and again and again, because it needs to stick. It needs to be where it's almost like word vomit, like every time we open our mouth, it's just falling the words of the truth of the Word of God are just falling out constantly. If we open our mouths, Jesus needs to come out. If we have a conversation, it needs to be consumed by Jesus. And so if I continue to just repeat and reiterate and repeat and reiterate, then eventually our conversation is going to bear witness to the fact that we know these things. That's what we've been doing on Sunday nights in our evangelism training is just going over it and over it and over it so that way it's easy. We don't have to think. We don't have to process. We don't have to pause. It just flows. So this is going to be the conclusion message to our series, Don't Be a Shipwreck. And we get that from 1 Timothy 1.19. And I don't know if you guys seen these handouts I put out there, but it's a handout covering our series. Um, and we started out with 1 Timothy 1.19, and we focused on the Scripture, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of the faith. And so we were like, well, we need to find out what the antecedent of this is. What modifies that pronoun? What defines what this is? Because if it says by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, and we're like, okay, we need to figure out what, if you reject it, will make you a shipwreck and make your faith a shipwreck. And so it answers the question for us. Faith and a good conscience. And so we went back and we defined, okay, faith, we're going to use the definition provided in verse 15 of the same chapter, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Because if we don't have that understanding, then there's no point of this. If we don't have that understanding that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, then we're of all men most miserable. If Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to save sinners, then we're all going to hell. If Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to save sinners, then we have no hope, no chance, we're lost, we're undone, and we might as well just go home and drink and eat for tomorrow we die. Really and truthfully, that's a pessimistic way to look at it, but if we don't believe that central statement, then we have no faith. So that's squared away. We understand that we have to have that, but what of the good conscience? That's what the whole series has been about. What does it mean by good conscience? And we've jokingly said every, every message in the series, we're not talking about Jiminy Cricket following around Pinocchio and saying, don't do that, you're going to make a fool of yourself, or okay, you can do that. We're talking about the spiritual affirmation inside, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit, that we are of God, that we're children of God, that we're doing the things that Christianity demands. Because that's not a popular phrase, that's not a popular statement that Christianity has demands, but it does. Christianity has things that you have to do or otherwise you're not a Christian. If your works do not mirror your faith, then you have no faith. Your faith, if it does not produce works, is dead being alone. We've said that every message this whole series. And so I created this handout because we did a couple things. We looked at natural causes of shipwrecks. What in the natural realm would cause a ship to wreck? And then we looked at the parable of the sower and the different types of ground. And then we compared that to the spiritual application. And so this handout that we created simply does that. Natural cause number one is a shipwreck caused by failure of design. 
Now, uh, the spiritual parallel is failure of investment. It's not that the design was bad. It's that what we put the design to use in was not what the design was intended for. If we're to be stewards, everything that we own, everything that we have, everything that we're capable of is all God's. The earth is His and the fullness thereof. Everything that we have, all of our abilities, we receive from heaven. Every good thing is from the Father of lights. So all, the design is perfect. But sometimes we take God's money. Sometimes we take God's time. Sometimes we take God's abilities that He's given us. Sometimes he, we take God's relationships that He's provided in our life. And we put those to all the wrong uses. The words that He's given us, the ability to communicate and speak, we put those to the wrong uses. A yacht is a beautiful design, but if you put a yacht in a creek, it ain't going to do a thing. A kayak is wonderful for going down rapids, but if you put a kayak in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, it can't survive a hurricane. The design is perfect for what it's intended for, but we have to put the design for its intention, otherwise it's going to fail. That causes shipwreck. That's stewardship. We're managers of God's possessions. Everything we have, we owe to Him. So we should put it towards the design He intended, which is to grow the kingdom of God, to bless people, to glorify His name. Amen? The, that parable parallel is the seed upon the road. The road, the ground is so hard from so much travel that the seed's thrown, and, but it never gets invested. It never gets planted. And if we don't invest ourselves into the kingdom, then we're not really planted. Natural cause number two is a navigational error. Either longitude or latitude is off. That's a relationship. The relationship horizontal is our relationship with one with another. And we said when we preached this message, we said that you can tell the character of somebody by how they treat their inferiors, people that they think are less than themselves. Because everybody's going to suck up to somebody that they think can do something for them. You walk up to Bill Gates or whoever now is the richest person in the world, you're going to be nice to that person. It's human nature. You're just going to typically be nice to them. Not everybody. Some people are just mean no matter what. But typically people are going to be nice to somebody that they think can bless them financially or bless them with a promotion or help them out in life. But if they think that they're less and they're going to need something and that part, you shun them, that says more for your character than how you act towards somebody that can do something for you. You tell the character of a man or a woman by how they treat those that they deem less than themselves. And that's also a direct reflection of how close to God you are. Because God condescended to men of low estate. Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came from the throne of God, the highest, the pinnacle of high. El Elyon, the most high God. He came from the most high position and condescended and made Himself lower than the angels. Took upon flesh, set His reputation to the side and was made in the likeness of men. And then not only to do that, but then he died and he went into the underworld all to save sinners. That's the plan of God. He condescended. So we likewise are to condescend to men and women of lower estate than us so that we can pull them up to where we're at and that we as, partner, as a partnership can ascend and come closer to God. The second part of relationship is lordship, and that's vertical. That's just our relationship to Christ as Lord. And the message that we preached following that, which was last week's message, I believe, was on worship. 
if he is Lord, then we will worship and our worship will correspond with that, our reaction to him. And that whole message, all of that was just about taking the facade down, taking the mask off and just getting real before God. He knows the intents of your heart. He knows the deepest, darkest secrets that you have anyway. So let's just put the facades down. Let's start putting aside the people pleasing and the, oh, we're going to be one person on Sunday and be somebody else the rest of the week. Let's stop pretending and let's start getting authentic with our worship. If you're in despair and in depression, then be in despair and be in depression and worship God there. There's Psalms written where David was in depression and he never once said, God, I'm not in depression. No, he said, I'm in the lowest pit. My bones ache because your hand is upon me. If we're hurting, then be hurting and be authentic about it. If we're happy and rejoicing, then let's bless God for that. But wherever we're at, let's be honest with where we're at. If we're dealing with stuff, then let's be honest that we're dealing with stuff. Because worship, if it's fake, isn't worth the time doing it. It doesn't matter how well you sing, how well you play. It don't matter how good you sound, how well you can dance. If you get up and run around, there's a time and place for it. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how effective you raise your hands and how good you look doing it. If your life is crap, yeah, I said crap from the pulpit. Sue me. If your life is crap, then I don't care what your worship looks like on the outside. It ain't worth a thing. Let's put our lives together and let's let our lives be a life of worship. Let our lives be a life of surrender. And let's be authentic and honest about where we're at. And let's worship God for where we're at. Right? Now, all of that to say, we're coming to the conclusion of this series. And it's been a tough series. You guys might remember when we first I first started preaching this, I said, I don't really want to preach this series because it's saying things that aren't pleasant to say. Everybody that preaches wants to get up here and say, God wants to bless you. God's for you. God's on your side. Grace, grace, grace. Goodness, goodness, goodness. And I love the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God that leads men and women to repentance. But sometimes you have to stand on God's behalf and you have to declare the hard truth, the truth that nobody wants to hear. And I said, at the very least, even if you hate me for what I say, at least you'll know I'm not going to get up here and sugarcoat it for you. At least you know I'm going to get up here and say things whether I want to or not. I'm going to follow what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. At least I'm going to do that. Because if you hired, and I use this picture, if I was in Africa ministering on a missions trip and Faith and the kids were here, and I sent somebody and said, look, I want you to take this message to my wife. I want you to tell her I love her and I'll be back in three days. And the messenger leaves and they say, yeah, he's going to be back sometime in the future. And that's all they said? That would be a terrible messenger. Terrible. Or if they didn't deliver the message at all. The messenger never gets to declare what the message is. They don't get to decide what the message is. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said declare. They don't get to decide what the message is. They only get to say what the message is. The message has already been decided. It's right here. It's written out. I don't get to change it. I don't get to put my opinion on it, my personal spin. I just simply get to declare what it says. And so if I only preach the good stuff, then we're going to be a bunch of happy, wimpy Christians. But if I preach the truth from front to back, the deep truths, the hard truths, then we may be irked a little bit at times. Because I'm not going to lie to you, honestly, some of this irks me. But the point of a mature Christian is when you find that section, that verse that just irks you, and like, I wish it said it this way, 
You don't skip over and disregard it. You take that and you just chew on it and you just chew on it and you read it again and again and again until that verse masters you. That's how you know if you're mature or not. If you take a verse and you hate it and you just bypass it and throw it to the side and avoid, like if it's, so let's just say Psalms. Psalms 100. If Psalms 100 bothers you, and you skip from Psalms 98 or 99 and you just skip and you don't start reading Psalms until you hit Psalms 120 just to be sure you don't even get in the vicinity of that ver- that chapter or that verse. That's not maturity. Maturity is taking that verse that bothers you and just holding it there in front of you until you get it, until it masters you, until you understand it, until you know that this verse is life-changing, this verse is your verse. And maybe it will become your favorite verse. Maybe not. But it will become a revelation that God's standard doesn't change based on your likes and your preferences. His standard is His standard is His standard from here until eternity. It's never going to change. It's always been. That's the one thing I love about the Bible is I'm using an ESV Bible right now. But if I walk up there and I pick up an NIV or an NASB or if I knew Spanish and I picked up that Santa Biblia back there, any one of them, if I go to the same verse, the wording may be a little bit different, but it's going to say the same thing. That's what I love because God's standard is consistent across the board. Across the board. And that's what we have to take and we have to understand. That this is His Word. It's not just another book. It's life-giving. But it's only life-giving if we allow it to be the Lord. If we allow it to be our Master. Not say I'm going to make it say what I want, but allow it to say what it says and allow our lives to reflect that. So this week, finishing out this series, it's going to be on discipleship. 1 Timothy 1 the natural parallel for a shipwreck would be an internal and external struggle like a mutiny on board, a fire, bad weather, a hurricane, all of those things sink a ship. If you're looking at the parallel of the parable of the sower, it would be like a seed cast among thorns that it can grow, but the cares of the world, the thorns, they choke it out and they kill it. If you don't have discipleship in your life, and we're going to get into what discipleship is. If you don't have discipleship in your life, then the cares and the concerns and the worries of this world are going to kill you. Spiritually, they're going to kill you. If you are not a mature Christian, and if you don't strive to be a mature Christian, the cares and the concerns and the worries and the circumstances of this world will sink your ship, and they'll make a shipwreck of your faith. That's why discipleship and becoming a mature Christian is so important. Starting in verse 1, 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. Paul was a eunuch. He was celibate. He was abstinent. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have any biological children. He had a spiritual son, Timothy. He had another one named Titus. But... He says, my true child in the faith. And this is so important because discipleship is about reproduction. I'm going to say a statement here and I'm going to say it at the end of the message as well. If discipleship is about reproduction and your biological children will look like you do. Little Brucey looks just like you, Bruce. Asher looks like me with blonde hair and white skin. Our children look like who we are. And if discipleship is about reproduction and reproducing ourselves in others look at your Christian life 
and say if a new convert, somebody got saved right now today, let's just say someone walked up to the front at the end of service and said, I'm not a Christian, and they gave their life to the Lord. Ask yourself honestly, you don't have to tell me the answer, honestly, would you like them to become the Christian that you are? Like how you live your life, how you devote yourself, how much time you spend in prayer, how much time you spend in worship, how much time you spend reading the Word, how often you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, how often you submit yourself to the will of God, how often you evangelize. Would you like them to become the Christian that you are? Or would you want better for them? Would you want them to go further, to go deeper than you are? Because if we're not to a place in our Christian life where we would be happy if they got to where we're at in Christianity in Christian maturity, then we need to mature ourselves. We need to keep growing no matter what, but we need to take a real checkup from the neck up if we're not to a place in our Christian life where if a new convert come in, that we would be happy to see them become a Christian like what we are. That's a tough pill to swallow. But are we living our lives in such a Christ-like way that if somebody got saved today, they would become a Christian like us and we'd be happy about it? Paul says, my true child in the faith. Discipleship is about reproduction. That word actually can literally be disciple. My true disciple in the faith. My child, someone that's taking on the characteristics of an elder. My true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we get into the meat of this. As I urged you, compelled you, persuaded you, implored you, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And here's the big verse. The aim, the goal, the destination, the overall desired end of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Does that sound familiar or what? A good conscience and a sincere faith, a pure heart that puts forth love. So I want you to look at something real quick and then we'll move on. But I want you to look at, so verse 2, he says, my true child in the faith, where we understand that's about discipleship. Verse 3 talks about not devoting themselves or teaching any different doctrine. Doctrine's important. What we teach, what we learn, how we believe about God, how we believe about the Holy Spirit, how we believe about church, it's important. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. So look, you've got three words here. And I want to highlight this for a reason. You've got discipleship, you've got doctrine, and you've got devotion. And I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've asked myself over and over again, what's this church about? What's this church focused on? And this statement is a statement that was personally mine for a while, but I've kind of adopted it and said, I'm going to put this forth as this church's mission, vision statement, as this church's motto that we are focused on discipleship, that we are founded in doctrine, and that we are fueled by devotion. And so this right here lays it out. Discipleship. Reproducing the work of God that's been done in us, in others. Understanding and getting our doctrine right. And then giving ourselves 100% devotion to God. Everything that we have, devoting it to Him. 
so that we might be good stewards of the faith that He's given us. And our goal, our aim, is love from a pure heart because we know that Matthew 5.8 says that those that have a pure heart will see God. That's the goal. A pure heart that produces love. We're not capable of producing or manufacturing love. When I say produces love, what I'm actually saying is a pure heart that works as a mirror that when we receive God's love, it's reflected to everyone around us. It's not just received and held. That goes back to the whole parable of the talents where the one person got the talent and he buried it in the earth and he didn't do anything with it because he was scared. He said, I know that my master's an austere man. He's a hard man. First, he had a misconception and a bad teaching of who his master was because Jesus is a kind, good, gracious master. Second off, he buried what God had given him. And it didn't produce anything for the kingdom. We cannot have a heart that just absorbs God's love and we just hold it to ourselves. No, we have to have a heart that works as a mirror that's so pure that when God's love hits it, it just reflects to everyone around us. That's the goal. That's the aim of our charge is a pure heart that reflects God's love and then we have a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what this whole thing has been about. How do we have a good conscience? How do we live a life that reflects the faith that we say we hold and we believe in? That's what the whole thing's been about. So we are a church. And I'm going to say this until I'm blue in the face, until you guys are tired of hearing it. We're going to be a church that's focused on discipleship, that's founded in doctrine, and it's fueled by devotion. Because it should fuel us. Our devotion to God should increase the fervor and the passion that we have and want us to devote even more to God. You can ask any person, all the rich people out there that have all kinds of money, most of them are the most tight wads you've ever seen. Unfortunately, a lot of them are. Maybe not most. Maybe I was wrong to say that. But a lot of them are very, very tight. They're penny pinchers. But then you can look at the people that have nothing but have generous hearts and they give it all away. And as soon as they get anything, they just want to give it away. As soon as they have anything to call their own, they just want to give it away. They just want to be generous. They're consumed by that spirit of generosity because that generosity fuels them. I want us to be like that across the board, not just with money, but with everything that we have. Our time, our energy, our abilities, our efforts, our conversation, like everything that we have, I just want to give it to the Lord. And if we can do that and we can create that culture of devotion, it's just going to fuel us to be even more devoted to giving it all away for God, to being completely burnt and spent out for God. I want to burn out for God. I want us to give everything that we have for God. That's the goal. Focused on discipleship. Founded in doctrine. Fueled by devotion. Amen? Alright. So we're going to look at becoming a disciple maker because you need to know what discipleship is and how to proceed from a disciple to a disciple maker because all of you are disciples. Everyone that claims the name of Jesus Christ that's born into the covenant, you become a disciple because you become a disciple of Jesus Christ in that moment. A disciple is someone that embraces the character, the priorities, and the teaching of their master. You say that you're a Christian and you live a life that reflects that you're a Christian, then you become a disciple. Now we want to look at how do we go from being a disciple to being a disciple maker. Because we want to be a healthy church that makes disciples, that makes disciples, that makes disciples. And eventually we want to be a church that makes other churches. 
that make disciples, that make disciples, that make disciples. So, same chapter, go down to verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. So first of all, the first thing you need to know about discipleship is you're incapable of it on your own. You cannot be a disciple or a disciple maker without God. Everything that we have, and I keep repeating this because I'm all about the glory of God, everything is God's. Including your ability to be a disciple and including your ability to be a disciple maker. He says, I thank God that's given me strength. I thank Him that's given me strength, Christ Jesus. Christ gives us the ability and the strength to be disciple makers. And he goes on to say, He appointed me to His service. So if you have the ability to become a disciple maker, it's only because God has appointed you to that service and given you that ability, given you that strength, given you that. It's a gift. It goes back to the parable of the talents. He's given you a gift. Now use it. Don't bury it. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And this is one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or the chief. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example, as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. As an example. So that's the second thing. We ourselves to be a disciple maker, first we have to realize that it's all because of Jesus. Second, we have to realize that our lives have to become an example. They have to become an example of His mighty power in your redemption. Don't ever lose your testimony. I don't care what it looks like. Don't ever lose the story of how you came to Jesus. Don't ever lose that. Even if you don't remember the date, if you do remember the date, write it down so you never forget it. But if you don't remember the date, that's okay. Don't forget the story. Because at the end of the book, in Revelation, it says, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the story about how they came under the covenant of the blood of the Lamb. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Your testimony has power in it because your testimony is a story, a relation, an epistle, or a letter of commendation, if you will, that shows God still works today. This whole Bible from front to back is nothing but a collection of a bunch of testimonies. That's what it is. It's a collection of a bunch of stories and instructions which are products of those testimonies. All your testimony is is a continuation of the story. The whole thing from creation, the fall, all the way to the second coming and the millennial reign and the establishment of the forever kingdom in New Jerusalem, all of that is one big God story. It's a story about a great God. And we get to be partakers in that. But just because the canonization of Scripture is complete does not mean that God's story suddenly ended and that we're looking back on history. 
We're looking on history knowing that it's not just limited to then, but it's also now and it's also forever. So your testimony is necessary and can be used as a form of evangelism to show that you're an example of God's grace. Paul says, God saved me not because I was a good person. He saved me because I was the chief of sinners. And he wanted to show that the worst of the worst could experience mercy and grace like the best of the best. Because the truth is, don't let anybody deceive you by their Facebook highlight reel or their Instagram highlight reel. We all suck. We do. Everyone sucks. And if they think any different, they're lying. If they tell you any different, they're lying. We all suck. We all have problems. We all know what to do and do the exact opposite. We're like, this is good, so I'm going to go this way. Everybody does it. No one's achieved the glory of God. No one's made the mark. Paul says it this way. He says, if you could be righteous in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of God, then Christ Jesus died in vain. It was useless for Christ to die if we could achieve it on our own. You can't. So get that picture of I'm good or I'm better than some. Jesus looks at two people praying and He says, this guy's a tax collector and a publican and an awful person. And this guy's a Pharisee. He's religious. He's elite. He's good. He's what we would say is the best of the best. And this guy's saying, thank you God for not making me like the tax collector. Thank you God that I only sin 10 times a week and not 300. Thank you God. Thank you God that I'm good. I'm good. And his prayer is thank you, God, but it's crap. The other guy beats on his chest and says, forgive me, God. He won't even look up to heaven, looks at the ground, says, forgive me, God, for I'm a sinner. Beating on his chest, looking like a mini King Kong. But he's the one whose prayer was accepted because he realized people suck. And in the eyes of God, everyone's fallen short. There's not one person righteous. There's not one person that truly seeks after God. There's not one person that hits the mark. We all miss it by a million miles. That word that we fall short, it's not like we're running in the right direction and we stop 10 feet short. That's not what it means. What it actually means is we're in the wrong vicinity altogether. We've shot in the wrong direction. The target for the arrow was over here and this was the glory and the righteousness of God and we shot this way. That's really what it means. We are completely off base if we think that we are anyway good. Jesus Himself says there's none good, no one but the Father. It's about time that we get to the place that we realize that we suck. Everybody sucks. I suck, you suck. We all suck. And I mean that in the best possible way. But I'm serious. Your testimony shows that God can reach down to someone that sucks and save them and take them up out of the ashes, out of the mud, out of the muck, set them on a rock and make them a new creation. That's why it's so important to be authentic. I've said this a hundred times about evangelism. Evangelism does not have to be pretty, eloquent, and perfect. It has to be authentic. It has to be real. Because I don't care how eloquent you can go through evangelism explosion, the 5S method, or any other method of evangelism you choose. If it's fake, sinners have one amazing ability. They can recognize hypocrisy. Many people stay out of churches because they say they're a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We're a bunch of hypocrites. 
but we're also a bunch of people that acknowledge that we're hypocrites and sinners in every other possible imaginable way. And we know that we shouldn't be here. But God loves us. And so we come here to return His love in kind and say, God, You loved me. You saved me. You chose me. You picked me up. You set me on a rock. And all I'm going to do for the rest of my life is figure out every possible way I can to say thank You for that gift. It's not about saying I'm good and I'm going to move on and I'm going to attain it. It's about saying no matter what happens the rest of my life, I'm going to live a life that's somehow in a small, minute fraction of a way worthy or deserving of that. Not that I'm going to try to earn my salvation, but that I'm going to try to live from that salvation. I'm going to do good works because the work was done in me. Not do good works so that I make myself deserving of that work. That's impossible. That's getting back to the hypocrisy again. That's why it's so important to be authentic. You cannot be a disciple maker if you're not authentic. I don't care how perfect you are. I don't care if you slip and you fall short. What I care about is you being open and honest with your shortcomings. Because if you're open and honest with your shortcomings, then you can show a testimony of how God's still working on you and that can be reciprocated in the person that you're discipling. Let's be examples of God's work. Let's be examples and letters of commendation or epistles of the working of God continuing on in present day, not just limited to 2,000 years ago. Verse 18 and 19. This charge... I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to verse 17 because this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible for no other point than to just read it. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, doesn't that just sound so good to read it? Let's do it again. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise God. This charge I entrust to you. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, my disciple, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So here's the whole picture. Here's the whole kit and caboodle, the whole show. If you want to go from being a simple disciple to being a disciple maker, you do not have to become an elite theologian knowing all the ins and outs of the Word of God to be a disciple maker. All you have to do, and I'm going to tell you right now, number one, you have to be saved. You have to give your life and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have faith, you don't have nothing. Number two, you have to live your life good conscience. The things that we went over in this series, you have to be a good steward of the things God's given to you. You have to have a relationship with those around you and a relationship with God. You have to worship God. But then once you get those, once you get those down, here's what you got to do. you got to let your light shine. You've got to be an example of God's work. You've got to be open and honest with where you're at. You've got to find somebody that's not quite to the place you're at yet. You've been saved three weeks. They've been saved two days. Okay, let's start discipling them. You don't have to always get it right. But you have to show them where God started and where He's brought you to. You've got to fulfill the charge yourself. What is the charge? Waging a good warfare, having a sincere faith, having a good conscience, having a pure heart that reflects the love of God. That's the aim. That's the charge. You've got to be fulfilling that charge yourself and you've got to be urging them, compelling them, begging them, imploring them to fulfill that charge also. And so I ask you the question again. A disciple is going to start to reflect 
the condition of their disciple maker. Are we living our lives as Christians in such a way that we would be happy if a new convert became the Christian that we are? Are we still bound up in sin? Or are we living righteous lives? And when I say bound up in sin, I don't mean that we occasionally slip up. When I say bound up in sin, I mean that we have a bondage that consumes us. Whether it be we're alcoholics or drug addicts or we're obsessed with pornography or we are cheating on our spouse. Those are what I'm talking about and being bound up in sin. I'm not talking about the slip-ups where you're in a conversation and you let your temper rise a little bit and a word slip out that shouldn't come out. I'm not talking about occasionally getting angry and having a little bit of road rage and losing your sanctification on the road. I'm not talking about those slip-ups. What I'm talking about is, is your life surrendered to God to the best of your abilities at this moment and will tomorrow be a greater surrender than today? Because if you're at that place then you're in a position where you can start discipling someone. That's what it's all about. Christ could have had everything. Not only did the devil take him up on the mountain and say, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you just bow down to me, and Christ refused. said, you won't worship the Lord thy God and Him alone shall you serve. But Christ also, at the end of His life, they took Him and they wanted to make Him a king and use Him as the beacon to overthrow the Roman invasion and the Roman oppression. And He refused that. He could have got every zealot throughout all the lands to come along behind Him and they may have been able to overthrow the Roman oppression. But He chose a different way. He chose to take 12 men and pour His life into them and make disciples of them so that they could be a reflection of who He was. And then those 12 men went out. And by the time Pentecost came, there was 120 people in a room. And then after that, there was thousands added to the church. And God continued to add increase to the church daily. How did He do that? Because disciples were making disciples. And that's what we have to be. We have to be focused, fixated, fastened on making disciples. That's why that's first. It's not fueled by devotion, founded in doctrine, and then focused on discipleship. No, it's focused on discipleship first. Because wherever we're at in this progression trying to be like Jesus and go draw close to God, we need to be making disciples and pulling them along with us. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm going to do the best of my ability to disciple everyone here, but I want everyone here to do the best of your ability to disciple someone else. Lead people to the Lord. Share the Gospel. Everywhere. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be authentic. There's many ways to share the Gospel. Live your life in such a way that people will believe that there's a God and His working in you. Let your life be an epistle. Right? Alright, so here I want to go over this real quick and then I want to, I want to kind of conclude. I've asked the question, do you live your life as a Christian so that if someone just got saved, you'd be happy if they became the Christian that you are? That's a real check. It's a check for me. Am I really living my life? Like if they prayed the exact same amount of time a day that I pray, if they read the exact same amount that I read each day, if they worship the exact same amount that I worshiped each day, if they watch the things that I watch, if they read the things that I read, if they are on Facebook as much as I'm on Facebook, if they're on Instagram as much, like it's literally every area of your life, if they live their life exactly the way that you live yours, would you be happy that they became the Christian that you are? That's a check. So I'm going to let faith play for just a second. Just some, I don't care what it is. Something back there, something up here either or. I'm going to let faith play something 
for just a second. We ain't going to spend 30 minutes. We're just going to spend just a second. And I want everybody to just bow your head and close your eyes. This isn't for some mysticism. This is just so that you can get your mind off all the distractions. And you don't look at anybody or think about anybody else looking at you. Who cares? If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, people are going to be looking at you for the rest of your life. Here's the, here's, here's the prayer. Two things. Number one, if you're not a Christian, that's first and foremost. Let's get that dealt with immediately. If you don't know Jesus, and in evangelism training I go over this time and time again, there's two things that are necessary. Or four things that are necessary to be a Christian. Number one, you confess your sins. Number two, you repent of those sins. You turn away from those sins. Number three, that you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And number four, that you submit to that Lordship that you just confessed. Confession is made unto salvation. The heart believes, the mouth confesses. That's all that's necessary for someone to be saved. If you have never done that, that's the first portion of this altar call. If you have never confessed that you're a sinner, chose to repent or turn away from those sins, accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and chose to follow Him, that's the first portion. The second portion is if you are a Christian and you've merely been floating along and you would be distraught if a new Christian became the Christian that you are, then I want you to come up. So that's the two, the two phases of the altar call. Number one, if you're not saved, come forward. Number two, if you'd be distraught if someone became the Christian that you are, come forward. And take just a moment. Remember, there's only four things that are necessary for salvation. Confession, repentance, belief, confession, and living your life for Him.